Welcome to this week's sermon from Dale Partridge at Kingsway Bible Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit kingswaybible.org. In my last sermon, I presented the biblical basis for church membership. And my point was to demonstrate that the language of the New Testament implies that Christians are collected and connected in intimate local congregations where they are known and cared for. That is, in the New Testament, the expectation of regular attendance and giving and submission to elders and discipline, uh, one another, they cannot be anticipated or carried out without a very clear understanding of who is a member of that congregation and who is not. I also discussed the biblical, the 12 biblical blessings of a local church membership where we saw the real, and I say real, spiritual, emotional, financial realities, the relational realities that's received when you're a committed member to a church. It is an absolute blessing to be a member of a local church. But today I'm going to be going over the seven biblical expectations of what local members do. Not what you receive as a blessing, but what your responsibility is as a local church member. Now, as we know, the Christian life is not a one-way street. It's a two-way street. You know, I, I forgot who said this, but it's church should be less like going to the movies and more like going to the gym. There's a reality there that we should be not just consumers, but also contributors to the reality of the local church. And that's important for what we're doing here at King's Way. Now, when I look to Scripture, I see two prerequisites for church membership in the Scriptures. There's really only two. And then I see seven biblical expectations, and we're going to go through each of them. But the two prerequisites are basic. You must profess faith in Christ. If you want to be a member of the church, you must profess that you have faith in Christ. And what do you have faith in Christ to do? Well, to earn a righteous judgment on the last day. You're trusting in the righteousness of Christ to be given to you by faith. And number two, right, two, Uh, you must be baptized. You must be baptized. Now, that could have been a baptism when you're a child. It could be a baptism when you're an adult, but you must be baptized. Now, these foundational prerequisites, those two realities lay the groundwork for all seven of the other expectations for church members. Now, the core reason that you should formally join a local church, this is the core reason. If you're going to take a note, this is a a place for a note. It's because you add... You individually add to the redemptive potential of that congregation in this city. Do you get that? You add to the redemptive potential of this city. Essentially, you're becoming an active, a trained, a deployed member of the congregation for the organized distribution of the gospel of Jesus Christ in Prescott. Amen? This is what we're here to do. And that's our mission at Kingsway, is to grow a community of gospel-fluent families. Unfortunately, many, many Christians are not gospel-fluent. They stumble and fumble. They cannot communicate the gospel eloquently, clearly, accurately. After 10 years, 20 years of being in the church, it's unacceptable. It's not right. We need to be gospel-fluent families. And so I want to walk us through those expectations to lay the groundwork of what it means to be an exceptional member of a local church. Number one, you are expected to guard the holiness of the church. 
1 Peter 1, 15 through 16 says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So as representatives and witnesses of Christ, uh, you are expected to protect the holiness of the local church. The primary way that you get to do this is to live a godly life, a righteous life, to be careful with your actions and with your words and your relationships and the perception. I often remind people that perception is reality for a lot of people. Okay, I, as a pastor, I can drive an $85,000 Ford F-250. I cannot drive a $40,000 Mercedes. Now, why? Because perception is reality. And so people look at that and they go, oh, look at the pastor driving a Mercedes. They don't realize that it's $40,000 less than the truck. But perception matters. And for the sake of the gospel, I want to manage my own perception that it might not stumble anybody that's watching. And we know, uh, Paul affirms this ethic in 1 Corinthians 9.22. He says, that he becomes all things to all people that some might be saved. He essentially, he modifies his life for the sake of the gospel. Now that could go to the extreme and you don't want to do that. But you do want to, especially for men like me, be careful that my actions and behavior and perception do not stumble a brother in any possible way. 2 Corinthians 6.3 says, We do not put obstacles in anyone's way so that by no fault may be found within our ministry. Don't put an obstacle in someone's life. So ultimately, you are called to create a life that's representative of the gospel and the goodness of the gospel and the forgiveness that you've received in the gospel. And for that reason, you should combat sin in your life. You should hold one another accountable for the sin that they have in their life. You should be open to the guidance of pastoral counsel in your life. Number two, You're expected to be committed. Too often we avoid true commitment. I think we have a commitment-phobic culture. I mean, this is why I feel so bad for young people that are 28 and they cannot find a spouse. We live in a commitment-phobic culture. Uh, We often in the church in America hold to the very American belief that our relationship and growth with the Lord is private and not corporate. That's individualism, not covenantalism. You do not have a relationship with the Lord apart from the church. You don't. You're not this independent entity over here with a special vertical relationship that's disconnected from the horizontal relationship of the church. We do this together. Christ made a covenant with the church, of which you are a member. But he doesn't have this independent covenant with you by which you grow independently with just him, me, my Bible, and Jesus. Okay, that's a very real thing in America that's very not biblical. Um, Scripture describes the church as a collected and connected people. The idea that we can walk independently and autonomously, it's something that we really need to fight against. It's really something we need to fight against. The Apostles' Creed says that we believe in the communion of saints. That's part of the Apostles' Creed. We confess that creed here. Every Christian since the beginning of time has confessed that creed. We believe that all who have been chosen by God before the foundation of the world have been brought into covenant with Jesus Christ. Titus 2, 12 or 13 through 14 says, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people 
for his own possession. We are God's people, covenantally. Locally, we meet in congregations. And so because we are in covenant with God, we are in covenant with one another. Does that make sense? Basics? And that should change the way that you think about your commitment to a local church. Are you actually in covenant? Or are you the people that just kind of, I'm going to come and then I'm going to go and I'm going to be here for five months and I'm going to switch over here and never actually extending yourself to a submissive, committed relationship to a body of believers. It's way too common. When you're in covenant, you don't leave because someone offended you. Try that with your wife. You offended me. I'm out. It's never going to happen. You work it out with grace and truth. When you're in covenant, you don't get frustrated because one of your preferences wasn't met. No, you grow with one another. You strengthen that bond that you have in Christ. And you show the world what it means to be holy and a covenantal, committed people. You want to show the world Christ? Show them commitment. That's one way. Easy. Number three. You are expected to be pastorable. People love sermons. They hate being pastored. Most of you have been in churches and have heard sermons. Many of you probably have never been pastored. That's unfortunate. It's not God's design for you or desire for your life. We've been raised in a generation of audience Christianity with inactive spectators that watch a show with very little relationship. And it's just this view of that we have some sort of transfer of biblical information. That's what church is. It's just a transfer of information. It's not participation. It's not transformation. It's just passing of information. That is not what scripture teaches. And if, if it's just a transfer of information, you could do that at home, on your couch. And guess what? Many do. Because they have an unbiblical definition of what church really is. Church is not just about transferring information. It's also about a spiritual... The liturgy of the church is a biblical arrangement aimed at pastoring your soul. This is shepherding you right now, if you're not aware. You're listening. You're praying. You're singing. You're partaking. You're going to eat together. You showed up today. This is shepherding you for your own spiritual benefit. In other words, it's not just about hearing sermons. It's about being pastored by all these realities. Our confession of sin today, this is you being pastored. It's good to be here. It's good to be shepherded. Hebrews 13, 7 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. And those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. We all love online influencers. And they're good. They're helpful. I'm an online influencer. But they have no spiritual authority over us. And we like that. Because we can essentially take and leave what we want. That is not so with your pastor. When you commit to a local church, you're actually willing to say, I will submit to the pastoring, the theological and doctrinal realities. I will be informed primarily by you and the elders of this congregation. Doesn't need, mean you need to accept every possible thing, but it does mean that you are willing to hear and to listen and to offer honor and respect and to trust that this person 
is actually going to be accountable for your soul. There's a stricter judgment for teachers. And there's a reason I spend 15 hours a week preparing a sermon in prayer, bathed in study, that it might be beneficial to your soul. Because I'm going to be accountable for that. And so your job as a local member is to recognize that outside of God and His Word, the pastors at your church are the primary means for your theological formation. You know how hard it is to teach something and then your congregation walk out and listen to this sermon and that podcast and this video and this article and this, this song and this friend sent them this and this friend sent them that and they come back in polluted with theological doctrines and questions. That didn't happen 200 years ago. Okay, the last thing you heard about Scripture 200 years ago was your pastor's sermon the following Sunday. It's very difficult for pastors today. Hey, I was reading an article on the Gospel Coalition that said this. Okay, let's talk about that. It's, it's not that it's a bad thing. I mean, that's what I do. But just recognize that that is a real thing. Choose who influences you. And let your pastors, the elders, be that primary. Not the sole, but the primary influence there. Number four, you're expected to attend the Lord's Day Worship Assembly. You're here. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day, capital D, drawing near. God's people have always met weekly, even the Old Testament. There was a synagogue and people were meeting on Saturday for worship. It's not a new thing to commit every single week for God's people to show up. That's not a historical reality. We, we know that that is God's expectation and it is the biblical description of what the early church did. Acts 20, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 16, 2, show that the early church assembled on the first day of the week. Why? Because that's the day that Christ rose from the grave. It was a memorialization and recognition of this is the Lord's day. It's holy. It's set apart. It's actually a transition from the Old Testament where they started with work and ended with rest on Saturday. We as Christians start with rest and from that rest we work. The purpose of assembling on the Lord's Day is not simply just to check off, uh, I'm a faithful attender. The Lord's Day assembly is what theologians have called the ordinary means of grace. You need to grasp this. The Lord has, a, has designated a recurring day in a recurring week, in a recurring month, and these activities, when you come to church, the liturgy, the order of worship, they act as conduits, as channels, moving His grace to His people uh, that are kind of like aqueducts that are designed to deliver water to particular places. The church on Sunday is the ordinary means of grace to teach your children to pray and to give your family an appetite for righteousness and to sing and to partake in the communion and to hear the word of the Lord, and to read scripture. This is God's grace being given to you. It's literally where 
God's grace is regularly extended to you here on Sunday. The ordinary means of grace. We love special means of grace. We're always looking for special experiences while just avoiding Sunday, avoiding reading our Bible, avoiding listening to the word being preached, avoiding the sacraments. These are the ordinary means of grace and they are good at what they do. And so what our church here calls covenant renewal. Do you understand that that's what, this, what happens on Sunday? You're in a covenant with this church. This church is in a covenant with the Lord because we're, the church is the covenant with the Lord. When we come to church, we call it covenant renewal. When you're married, you go on a date with your wife. That's covenant renewal. You have time set aside for one another. That's covenant renewal. Sunday is covenant renewal. That's what we're doing here. It should be the place where you feel close to God. It should be the place where you feel close to his people. It should be the highlight of your week, your kid's week. It should be. It's where you receive the means of grace. Someone once said, church should be the reason we miss everything else. Sadly, we often see people, hey, we couldn't make it to church on Sunday. We had family in town. And I always go, you miss an incredible opportunity to teach your family that church is more important than that. Church, God, the worship of God is more important than hanging with your family. I know that's shocking to some people. Church is not to compete with your family, it's to complement your family. You know, the greatest thing is to bring your family to church. I'm not saying that there aren't exceptions to Miss Sunday, there are. A planned vacation, you know, uh, someone's sick. Those happen, they're exceptions though. They're exceptions to the reality. According to scripture, members have the same expectation to show up to church on Sunday as I do. Just for a moment, humor me. Imagine you all showed up and I sent a text message out at 10. Hey guys, sorry I can't make it. I got family in town. That'd be absurd, right? Who's going to preach today? There's no different expectation for you than there is for me to be here. I don't come here for you primarily. I come here for God and my responsibility to you. And you should come here for God and your responsibility to one another. Certainly taught in scripture that Sunday is to be a priority in your heart. That's where it matters, in your heart. Number five, you're expected to edify, unify, and pray for this church. Speaking to the local church, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 26, it says, let all things be done for edification. Ephesians 4, 3 says, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. James 5, 16 says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So as a member of the local church, you're expected to contribute to the edification of this body. And you know how you can edify somebody? Just saying hi, hugging somebody, listening to somebody, encouraging one another with scripture, showing that you're committed to them. Edification is not just me preaching. There's other ways to edify. And you're expected to seek the unity in this body, to reject anything that would divide this congregation to put away all gossip, to overlook sin if possible, to restrain the inclination to be offended, to not keep a record of wrongs and to protect yourself from bitterness. That's why people leave churches. You know that, right? They forget how much they've been forgiven in Christ oftentimes. Now, there are great reasons to leave a church. If you're not preaching scripture, if you're not preaching the gospel, 
That's a fantastic reason to leave. Now, the best way to keep this church healthy is to pray for this church. Because when a person prays, it shows that they care. To pray for the sick, to pray for the weak, to pray for those that offend you, to pray for the quiet, to pray for the prideful, to pray for the new, to pray for the visitor. But to not pray is to not care. And that's exactly what we don't want to do. All I'm asking for you guys is to care. To care. Enough to set aside some time to pray for this church, to pray for the leadership, to pray that the gospel might go out to this city. Number six, you're expected to participate in the Great Commission. Jesus said all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. He says, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Not every Christian is called to be an evangelist, but every Christian is called to proclaim the gospel. Okay, I'm not saying that you need to go look for opportunities, but when opportunities are given, you need to be ready. I don't care if you're the 10-year-old boy or the new mom or the 50-year-old man or the new believer, whatever it is, you must be ready. It says in uh, 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. So when someone asks you, why is your life different? Why do you have hope when you shouldn't have hope? You need to be ready as a gospel-fluent member of this congregation to share the gospel. And gospel fluency, guys, means that you can come in at any angle through suffering, through joy, through hope, through trials, through a work conversation, through a private conversation, through the death of a child, through a miscarriage, through fighting with spouses, through a casual conversation, in five minutes, in two minutes, in 40 minutes, whatever it is, you need to be ready to come into that conversation. That's what will change this city. Too often, we have Christians outsourcing the responsibility to share the gospel to the pastor. They just invite people to church, expect me to do their job for them. I will certainly share the gospel here. But your job would be better is to share the gospel yourself and then invite them to church. That's your duty as a Christian. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Can you handle the word of truth? Are you a novice 12 years deep? Are you still on milk? I promise you, if you stay here, you will not be eating milk. We want this congregation to be robust and mature and not so theological that you lose the gospel. We're not going to be such egg-headed theologians that we've elevated the doctrine above the people in front of us. Theology without love and without basics doesn't work. But you are expected to tell people about Christ. You're also expected to disciple one another, including your children, here in this church. Basic fundamentals. Number seven, you're expected to financially support this local church if you're a member here. Now, frequency communicates importance. We can say that's a true statement, right? Frequency communicates importance. Here's some interesting stats. 16 of the 38 parables were concerned with how to handle money. It's kind of shocking. In the Gospels, one out of 10 verses, 288 in all, deals directly with the subject of money. 
The Bible offers 500 verses on prayer, less than 500 verses on faith, and more than 2,000 verses on money and possessions. That's serious. And you have to catch this. Money, like God, has the ability to give you what you want. And it's why we worship it. Do you understand that? Money, like God, has the ability to give you what you want. It's your little God that you get to control and buy these things that you need and want. And it makes people turn into idolaters. Generosity is a core component of the Christian faith, and it's clear that giving is the mark of a mature believer, and keeping is the mark of an immature believer. One person understands the providence of God and trusts God as a provider. The other operates out of fear and little faith. Now, in my understanding of the New Testament, generosity falls in three categories. Giving to the poor, giving to the needs of the saints, and giving to the local church for the expenses associated therein. 2 Corinthians 9, 6-7 says, But this I say, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. So this passage leverages what's called the law of the harvest. And that is we reap what we sow. If we give a little, we'll receive a little blessing. If we give a lot, we'll receive an abundant blessing. It's not an investment strategy like, oh, let's go give money so I can make money. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about you will be blessed if you give faithfully. 1 Corinthians 9, uh, 5 through 12 speaks further to giving. It says, Is it only Barnabas and I that have no right to stop working in their secular career? Who goes to war at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its fruit? Or who tends a flock and does not drink of its milk? Do I say these things as a mere man, or does the law say also these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen that God's concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt that it is written that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes, threshes in hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing that we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Okay, first... What is a muzzle? What is a muzzle? A muzzle is a device to prevent an animal from eating while it's working. Okay? The lesson that Paul is teaching here is that do not allow the ox who is working in the spiritual fields of your life stop working. He's saying don't muzzle your pastor or the elders or the work of the church. Don't stop the shepherds in your life from eating while they're working. Why? Because if you stop the spiritual ox in your life from eating, he will quit working and your spiritual development will stop. And many pastors and many churches have had to stop and end their labors because they could not afford to continue. It's not right. They stopped ministering the gospel so that they could provide for their family. And Paul does this in his ministry as well. Paul closes by defending a minister's right to financial payment. He says in verse 11 and 12, he says, 
if we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing that we reap material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Pay attention here. How much would you pay for a doctor to heal an infection in your body? Thousands? Why do we hesitate to pay the pastors or elders that heal the affections of our souls? Is healing your pornography addiction not more valuable than a throat infection? Is saving your marriage through counseling not more valuable than changing the oil in your car? Is having the gospel reaffirmed to you and your children not more valuable than the guy that installs your dishwasher that you're happily willing to pay for? All these services exercise their right to collect money for the labor that they provide. Do shepherds not have the same right to collect money for the spiritual labor that they provide? Paul and Jesus even affirm this truth in Luke 10:7, 1 Timothy 5:18. They say that the laborer is worthy of his wages. Pay people for what they do. Galatians 6, 6 says, Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches it. One theologian commented, he says, Contribute to the support of the men who have dedicated themselves to the work of ministry in the local church and who give up their time and their life to preach the gospel. It appears that some of the believers in Galatia were receiving the Christian ministry without contributing to its support. This is both ungrateful and sinful. We do not expect that a common schoolmaster will give up his time each week to teach our children the alphabet without being paid for it. And can we suppose that it is just for any person to sit under the preaching of God's word on a regular occurrence in order to grow wise unto salvation and not contribute to the support of that spiritual teacher? It is unjust, end quote. Now, under the New Testament, it's not about a percentage. It's not about 10%. It's about what you can give cheerfully. It might be 2%. It might be 32%. But don't think you can check off the 10% box and say, it's done. I've given. It's there. God might call you to give more. He might only have the ability to give 2% of your income right now. I don't care how much you give. What I care about is that you give. And I don't care for me. I care for you that money doesn't hold a position in your heart that only God should. And I have that same rule for me. Everything that you see around here that has been financially paid for, the elders, we have already came in to support this church financially. Over $10,000. We're not saying this to brag. We're saying this to show that we're in too. We're committed too. We're a congregation of men and leaders that have the same call to do that cheerfully and with a good heart. And so giving is to be a joy. And for that reason, every member at some degree, what the Lord has blessed you with, and sometimes there are months that are difficult, but at some degree, it might be 28 bucks. At some degree, every member, committed member at the church, should contribute to the financial reality of this church. I'm going to close with this. If you're walking away from a message like this and you're feeling burdened, like if you're, if you're feeling that like personal holiness and commitment and the ability to be pastorable and attending every Sunday and investing in people and 
and sharing the gospel and giving on a regular basis is just too much to ask, you have forgotten what Christ has done for you. You've forgotten what Christ has done. Yes, I am asking you to dedicate your life to the local church. I'm asking you to do that. I don't even care if it's here. I'm just asking you to dedicate your life to the local church because Christ asked you to dedicate your life to him. And what could be more important than wrapping your family around God's people to save the world? Like what else matters more than that? This is what we do as Christians. It honestly is the only reason you were even made is to worship God and to be in communion with him and his people. That's why you're here, here, kids. You're here to be a part of this body of Christ, to grow up in this special, set-apart, holy covenant people. What a blessing, right? And so for the sake of the gospel, become a member of a church, maybe this church, but whatever you do, go somewhere and be committed and stay long-term. Be in that covenant relationship and give your entire life everything you have to spread in the gospel for the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the church. Lord, that you have not left us as a scattered people, but a collected people. Lord, that you've given us an opportunity to be encouraged and edified by one another. Lord, we thank you for the ordinary means of grace that come through the congregation. Lord, we ask that you would help us to drop our autonomy and to be committed. Lord, let you reign on the throne of our hearts. We pray for your blessing over Kingsway, over the city, over this congregation. We ask for your providence and for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. For more information about Pastor Dale Partridge or Kingsway Bible Church, visit kingswaybible.org.